so maids. We have plenty to talk about today. Happy Monday. Hope the weekend was good. Welcome to Fox News Black Report. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm Nicole Delay Corte. It's Black History happening now. That's why we're honored to stand behind this desk each day to take you on a journey across Black America and share with you the stories that are impacting our people. We're going to bring you our news, our views, and our voice. So let's take a look at today's top headline that takes us to Missouri, where community and family is making any last attempts possible to save the life of a man who is scheduled to be executed tomorrow. Leonard Raheem Taylor was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder over the 2004 killing of his girlfriend and her three young children. Witnesses say Taylor was 2,000 miles away from the scene of the crime at the time of those murders. Attorneys from the Innocent Project say Taylor's lawyers effectively abandoned him, providing an incompetent defense at trial. They're asking for Governor Parson to delay the execution until a thorough investigation can be completed. And we've been following the story, uh, taking a, a deeper dive. There is surveillance video that shows uh, Taylor passing through security at uh, St. Louis's uh, airport uh, on the morning of Friday, December, uh, November, rather, 26 of 2004, he called a Southwest Airlines to uh, California to actually go see a daughter that he had uh, previously before this this relationship with the woman he is accused of, of killing. And, and so there's that evidence. And then uh, as the prosecutors claim that that, you know, has no effect on what they think because they feel that he was fleeing the scene of the murder and that he had already committed these murders. But further evidence shows that not only was he in California, but that uh, his daughter was put on the phone with one of the young children in the relationship that he was in, um, I guess, you know, just maybe to meet each other uh, ear to ear, um, which actually puts him you know, at the sea or puts him in California. That's right. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence here that suggests uh, he is innocent. It's heartbreaking to think that an innocent man could be executed. Uh, you know, folks are hoping for at least a stay so the investigation uh, can continue. Yeah, and at the very heart of this issue uh, is, is this idea that there hasn't been a fact finder that has reviewed uh, all of the evidence related to this case. Uh, it's important to also note that Taylor did have a criminal record and a history of violence. He'd done some time in California for rape, a rape he was accused of in 2000, raping a 16-year-old stepdaughter. He was also a, a seasoned drug dealer who trafficked cocaine across the country, amassing a string of uh, fraudulent IDs and such. But this is the issue. He may, ha he may have mm -hmm. a very checkered past, but the fact remains that facts have not been reviewed in his case in detail and we're on the eve of potentially an innocent man uh, being put to death under Missouri law. Yeah, and even on the other side of it, let's say he is guilty, wouldn't you want all of the T's to be crossed and the I's to be dotted and that investigation to have gone as far as it could possibly go. And so that is the issue there. So we're hoping uh, at least maybe he would uh, get a stay and so that investigation um, can continue uh, for as long as it needs to for something exact to be established. Yeah, I mean, it really raises the question of, of convicting folks beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Uh, and essentially the Innocent Project is saying that there is some room doubt. for doubt That's here right. Right. Uh, without every single one of the facts being examined by a fact finder. Mm -hmm. We'll continue to stay on this story, but um, moving ahead, established in 1919, Memorial Park Cemetery is one of the oldest African-American cemeteries in Tampa, and now it's under new management. 
The family of John Robinson, the previous owner, purchased Memorial Park in 1929. He maintained the property up until he died in 2019. Then the city of Tampa took over the maintenance. They hope to officially take ownership of it earlier this month by placing a lien and foreclosing on the site and then purchasing it at a county auction. However, when the auction came around, the city was outbid. Can you believe that? Their $9,000 bid was beat out by an $18,000 bid by the company 2715 West Slay LLC. And this company essentially is a company that buys property and flips uh, property. So that is that is really like the huge concern. Like, what is this new owner going to do uh, with this uh, with this cemetery? Uh, city uh, officials are a little perplexed. Uh, I'm sure they have a lot of questions to to answer as they were uh, outbid. And then uh, local officials, like uh, the folks at the Tampa NAACP, are now questioning. Uh, you know, not only the the lack of action uh, or attention from the city, but also you know, what is this new owner who's known to flip property? going to do, you know, with this uh, cemetery, you know, that people and citizens have a deep tie to is that's where their loved ones uh, are resting. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just didn't know that flipping cemeteries was a thing. I mean, you know, we've, we've all heard of folks uh, flipping properties. I'm sure there's somebody in our family or, or in our friend circle that is familiar with the practice of flipping properties. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never heard of flipping cemeteries. And who knows, this may be the very beginning of a very good reality TV show. I don't know, but it's, it sounds like, you know, the person who bid the highest and got the property is a property flipper. Now, if he's ever flipped cemeteries before, I don't know, and I would hope not, and I would hope that those would not be his intentions. I hope the producers of uh, Flip My Ride are listening closely, because Flip My Cemetery may be your next uh, big hit. Uh, I, not a hit at all. Just unfortunate, really. It really is. We'll keep our eye on this story as well. A week after delivering a powerful eulogy for Tyree Nichols, Reverend Al Sharpton makes a historic trip to the United Kingdom to champion voting rights and police accountability. The civil rights leader will make a two-day visit to the UK addressing the shared challenges around voting rights and police accountability for black Americans and black Britons. Sharpton will address Nichols' death and the parallels of police brutality in the UK, where the number of stop and searches for black people increased 24 percent. That's since COVID-19. As many Americans have called for justice for Tyree Nichols, Britons have demanded similar forms uh, after several instances of police misconduct. The Republican-controlled House Oversight and Accountability Committee has disbanded the Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. The former committee, which focused on issues like voting rights, freedom of assembly, and criminal justice reform measures, uh, were first started back in 2019. Now, the Republican representatives claim the move is to make the House Oversight and Accountability Committee more efficient. There's been no reason given why the subcommittee was removed or if at any point it will be reinstated. North Carolina's newly seated Supreme Court will decide on whether people convicted of felonies should be permitted to vote. Now, these privileges would only apply if they aren't in prison but still are serving probation or parole or have yet to pay fines. The justices listened to their first high-profile case since the court flipped to Republican control back in January after a Democratic majority for the past six years. They didn't immediately rule. Now, there are currently tens of thousands 
thousands of people with a felony statewide in North Carolina. And staying with the formerly incarcerated for a moment, uh, the Minnesota legislature on uh, just last week advanced a bill to the governor's desk that now restores the voting rights for people with felony records. Current law prohibits voting until a person's sentence is complete, including probation and parole. Under this bill, a person with a felony conviction would be able to cast a ballot upon release from incarceration. 21 states already allow felons to either regain their voting rights immediately after leaving prison. I think what makes you know this particular passing so interesting is that a couple of Republicans in this state flipped and 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 went ahead and agreed. Uh, and you know, for me, I think, listen, uh, you know, sometimes we mess up in life and we have to uh, pay the piper, if you will. I know there's been some argument as to what types of felonies, you know, um, that they have uh, committed and, and would that have any bearing on would you want them voting, you know, on certain policies and for certain, um, you know, politicians. Uh, so that debate continues, which is why in some states it's still caught up in argument in other states. They've decided to pass it through. It looks like here uh, in this particular state, uh, because a couple of Republicans did flip, they were able to pass that through. So, but I do believe that all in all, the, the debate will continue. And it's good to see that time served really means time served. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. if folks have been sentenced and they have done their time, uh, then why not restore their, their, their voting rights? I'm thinking of uh, the work that Desmond Mead led in Florida with mm -hmm. Amendment 4. Mm -hmm. uh, and as mentioned in the story, you know, there are nearly two dozen other states that have done this. Uh, and it's heartening to see that it, there's an issue out there, at least in the states, mm -hmm. where Republicans and Democrats can agree. And it wasn't just uh, on restoring these voting rights. They also agreed uh, to make Juneteenth a state holiday, mm -hmm. right? Right and, across the hall. <laughs> and, and, the, and that bill received overwhelming bipartisan support, mm -hmm. 126 to 1. Where do you, on what issues these days do you mm -hmm. hear, you know, numbers like that? And, and, and the last thing, I think it's important to connect the dots between the efforts that are afoot uh, related to voting rights, the fight for voting rights mm -hmm. here in the United States and around the world. We, mm -hmm. we talked about Al Sharpton, who traveled to the UK, and he wasn't just talking about voting rights, he was talking about police reform. Uh, which we so urgently need in this country. It was not his first time visiting Britain. He's been visiting quite often uh, for the past 30 years. Uh, but it reminds me of something that uh, a former leader of Amnesty International once said to me. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that, you know, don't think that, uh, you know, stop and frisk in New York uh, is not exported as public policy in other parts of the world. Even on the local level, uh, there are uh, there are cities around the world that are paying attention to what we're doing and not doing here in the United States. And so just how they you know, take notice of the things that we do well and the progress that we make, they also take note of the regress uh, that we make. And uh, Britain is no different. And uh, you know, just, just uh, it, it, since COVID-19, stop and searches of black people have increased nearly 25 this is just since the COVID-19 pandemic. And so clearly, globally, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, well, big ups to the state of Minnesota. I mean, both of those passings fare well on our side as though, you know, we've always been pushing for Juneteenth and seeing as though the numbers are very disproportionate when it comes to who's incarcerated. Uh, those bills are going to work for us for sure. Moving on here, there are new reports that are over uh, 20 hours of police footage related to the death of Tyree Nichols. We're told that footage has yet to be released and officials are discussing whether or not 
not to file additional charges against the now seven officers involved. It is up to city officials and the police department if the additional video from January 7th and that altercation will be made public as of this weekend or this past weekend. The family attorney Ben Crump says the family has not seen the extra footage. And sticking with this story for a moment, the Tennessee Department of Health Board has suspended the license of two Memphis EMTs who failed to render proper aid to Tyree Nichols after he was beaten by police last month. Robert Long and Jamichael Sandbridge were reportedly on the scene of the January 7th traffic stop, which ended with Nichols handcuffed and unable to speak or sit up on his own for 20 minutes before they attempted to help him. Following a suspension, the two MT EMTs and Memphis Fire Department Lieutenant Michelle Whitaker were terminated. The department said that the three individuals violated multiple policies and protocols. Nichols, 29 years old, suffered critical injuries, including kidney failure and internal bleeding. He died three days later. In another deadly police encounter, the family of Amir Locke is filing a civil lawsuit against the city of Minneapolis. Police shot and killed the 22-year-old while serving a no-knock warrant in a homicide investigation about a year ago. He was sleeping at the time and grabbed a gun when officers entered the apartment. He thought there was an intruder. The family says the past year has been very, very hard to get through. Meanwhile, Democratic Senator Cory Booker says he's talking to a pair of Republican senators about potential policing reform. Booker has a lead negotiator, he's been a lead negotiator of an unsuccessful effort to pass a policing reform bill in 2021 with Republican Senator Tim Scott. Now, Booker says he and Scott have now stopped talking about the issue since the failed efforts two years ago. Booker also said that he has had recent conversations with Senator Lindsey Graham about the policing reform measures. Graham has mentioned the idea that there may be a compromise on qualified immunity, which was one of the sticking points negotiations between the parties in 2021. Courtney, I just hope that uh, we're not just seeing political theater play mm -hmm. out before our very eyes in, a, in an attempt to uh, sort of, you know, uh, bring the temperature down uh, mm -hmm. on the issue. Uh, you know, public sentiment is everything when it comes to passing uh, uh, any uh, legislation, uh, but especially legislation uh, like police reform. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, people are looking to Cory Booker Mm -hmm. uh, and Tim Scott, you know, the two black uh, uh, senators, two of the three black senators uh, in the Senate to lead on this. But, uh, you know, what about the Senate Judiciary uh, Chairperson Dick Durbin? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what about, you know, uh, Lindsey Graham? What about uh, so many other senators uh, that can play an outsized role in helping to get this thing over the finish line? So I hope it's not just you know, typical political theater, but I, I, I hope that there is a uh, an honest effort that is afoot uh, to get this thing over the finish line. I think the biggest block that Brother Booker has is the fact that he's just dealing with folks across the aisle, Republicans who just aren't interested in this type of reform. And and, and that is the that is the pebble in the shoe, if you will. And, you know, that is a big task to, to, to overcome. Um, like we were just talking in Minnesota, a couple of Republicans flipped, I don't know, on the, on the federal level. Um, if, if he'll have that sort of kind of momentum to help flip, we can only hope so. Uh, and if not, that, uh, you know, we just 
trust him, uh, you know, Booker, to continue to push uh, and push and push for the reform, much like um, Vice President Kamala Harris mentioned uh, at the uh, Tyree Nichols funeral. But what this does bring to mind is this campaign, uh, seeing as though we've highlighted three cases with black men and this whole campaign that you see on social media about black men being able to grow old. And I think that's what's the most, you know, heartbreaking and, and the unfortunate connection between all of these cases. Very young men who had their future ahead of them, despite where they had might may gone wrong, they still should have had the, had the opportunity to self-correct yeah. and redirect and live a healthy, uh, promising life. Well, there's definitely a reason to keep hope alive. Just this past weekend, I interviewed uh, Judge Mathis on my radio show, and he reminded my listeners on mm -hmm. KBLA that, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, a lot of people said that was dead on arrival. There were a lot of folks uh, in the Senate uh, and in Congress that were not interested in that. And so if we were able to get that through mm -hmm. and, and get through the obstruction in Congress that existed then, then there's hope uh, for police reform in this country. So let us hope that uh, Judge Mathis has it right. Still ahead, an apology from one school district after a racist meal is served for lunch. That's right. Find out what the original meal was substituted for that has black students upset. You're watching Fox Souls Black Report. We'll be right back. Black History Month is a time to honor triumphs of African Americans throughout history, but students and parents at Nyack Middle School raised the alarm after a racially insensitive meal was offered on the first day of the month. I mean, I really can't believe that we're talking about this, like steel. Now, instead of Philly cheese steak, famous in Philly, broccoli and fresh fruit that appeared on school lunches uh, on the calendar, uh, our mark, the food service company that provides meals to that district serve chicken, and waffles with watermelon. Now back in 2018, another racially insensitive meal was served at New York University during Black History Month that included barbecue ribs, collard greens, cornbread, Kool-Aid, and watermelon flavored water. The company apologized and workers were actually fired. So back in Philly where school officials say Aramark has committed to partnering with the school to offer, I'm hoping what would be sensitivity training for its employees. A school district in upstate New York has issued an apology after a post showing three students posing with a snowman. It was deemed offensive. The photo, which was circulated on social media, omits the underage pupils, uh, but showed their ice cold pal and what some considered snowman blackface. Superintendent for Kokosakie Athens Central School District stated, quote, it was never his intention for anyone to feel any grief over the snowman that was covered in dirt by the district students and used to signify diversity. He said, we want to apologize and reiterate it was never intended to be hurtful. Now, according to local news station Fox 5, the since deleted post brought a flood of comments where Greene County residents called the image racist. Now, Courtney, mm -hmm. we saw this image this morning. <laughs> It's, first not, of all, it's dirty snow, but I think with the black kids standing behind it and then you get into the comparisons, I can see how we can land at a conversation like this, you know, a debate. The Post stated that the snowman is just as diverse as our students. That's the problem. Huh? That is the problem. What? Huh? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you know, I understand that, you know, you know, you know kids make mistakes and uh, I understand you know, that that happens routinely, but 
uh, this is more than just being hurtful. You yeah. know, th this, this was deliberate. Uh, there is no connection between a dirty snowman, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, celebrating diversity. Yeah, I say you get at the, I don't know if it was teachers, assistant teach, I don't know, you get at the people who who actually, because it could have been an innocent uh, construction, if you will, of a snowman, but then when it could have been, uh, you know, with some dirty snow, but then, you know, you, you add in some sideways adult and, and their filter and, and their way of thinking uh, and, and just speaking out a term and then including the young people in on it, again, we land at this at this conversation. As far as an update to the story is concerned, uh, the district is now, you know, reviewing some of their social media policies and, and maybe some things that they need to put into place to better police situations like this. But all in all, I think it rests with the adult, uh, which I'm assuming could have been a teacher with the adult who, you know, put, uh, you know, the words in a, a, into action and assigned those words to that snowman. And, and I'm hoping um, something could be done about that. Maybe it's back to sensitivity training. No different from the situation with uh, Aramark and the, and the food. You know, actually the situation in New York where they were serving the greens and the, and the, and the fried chicken and so on and so forth. I really don't see a problem with that in Black History Month, but it's the presentation. Yeah, and you I, know, it needs to be, hey, this is, this is soul food. This mm -hmm. is something traditional in the black community. It's the presentation, I think, that and I think both stories really represent teachable moments, mm -hmm. right? And so, mm -hmm. what an opportunity when it comes to you know the R mark uh, uh, issue in the cafeteria. You know, what does their school curriculum look like? I mean, let's really connect the dots, Courtney. Right? We're living in a time where we see you know efforts to uh, erase Black history uh, from school curriculums. Well, you know, maybe if if we leaned into it and we uh, enhanced. Uh, these curriculums related to black history, students can actually learn about the history of collard greens and the history of some of the, the foods that we have, that our, our communities have enjoyed over the years. Maybe they could learn why a dirty snowman, you know, has no link to diversity. There's nothing about that that is supportive, that is affirming, that is about building community and making people feel like they belong. And we just got to use some common sense. That's, that's really what it is all about. And some humanity. We've been talking a lot about humanity later, uh, lately. All right, organizations, or organizers rather, of the Black Men's Brain Health Conference have invited leading researchers and community leaders to address the brain health challenges facing black men this week at Arizona State University. The two-day conference will examine how various risk factors contribute to black men's higher risk for Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and other brain disorders. The conference will also explore how the brain ability to adapt to significant sources of stress affect men's cognitive health. Conference registration is free and is available for in-person or virtual attendance. For more details, uh, visit uh, mensbrainhealth.org. Structural racism creates barriers in housing, employment, and economic opportunities for black people and other people of color. Now, a new study has found that it can also have a harmful impact on children's brain development. The study published recently by the American Journal of Psychiatry found that black children are disproportionately exposed to adversity in early life, which may contribute to race-related differences in brain structures as compared to white children. Factors including marital hardship, neighborhood disadvantages, and trauma history led to greater disadvantages for black children, but income was the greatest factor reflected in the disparities of gray matter development, confirming data from previous studies on how low socioeconomic status and low income can negatively affect the brain. 
Now, I think for the latter uh, part uh, of uh, those insights, Courtney, um, I think for some of our soulmates, they may say, okay, water is wet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't mm -hmm. think people are, are surprised that, you know, uh, having a lower income, uh, you know, uh, can affect the brain development because low income, you know, probably means that it's harder to get, you know, uh, nutritious food. It, it's harder to, uh, you know, enjoy the aspects of life. Uh, that uh, that that don't involve heavy releases of, of of cortisol, the stress hormone. You know when people don't feel safe. Yeah, for me, I appreciate the statistics and the research, and I know that that we have to do that because it's a part of what we do. <laughs> we study each other. Uh, but listen, black people have always been resilient as our our children, and I've you know I've mentored plenty of children uh, you know throughout my years um, from some very very dark disadvantaged situations who still continue to soar, whether it's just something innate in them that um, you know people continue to celebrate and point out to them, or they just have a very supportive um, village. Uh, so I think we've just been conditioned to uh, you know maintain and to stay resilient despite uh, some of the disparities and some of the disadvantages that we as a culture and a community uh, a lot of times uh, have to deal with. And, and as we work to move those barriers out of the way, I think it's important in particular that we focus in on our young people to let them know that despite you know where you may come from or what you've been what you've been faced with unfortunately and unfairly at such a, a young age, you still can make it. I have a young lady uh, who just lost her mom um, and, and, and throughout her mom's decline maintained a 4.2 GPA. It, it can be done. It's not yeah. to say that it's not difficult, but it can be done. And this is how we're going to have to continue to raise and or condition and inspire our young people until we as adults move these barriers out of the yeah. way. I think both can be true. I think it's, it's, it's important for us to be able to tap into our resilience. Mm -hmm. um, and there are plenty of powerful demonstrations of folks that have done that. Um, but I'm also thinking about, you know, what researchers call the weathering effect. Uh, you know, it's this re it's, it's research that suggests that the effects of racism have a weathering effect on our minds and our health uh, over time. Uh, and so, you know, racism, uh, dealing with white supremacy violence, you know, it is, it's not just a, you know, uh, an attempt to make us feel safe and make us feel like we belong, um, but it has actually far-reaching consequences in terms of the health of black people. And so, to me, that was, you know, one of the big insights that mm -hmm. came out of this research. Yeah, I get that, but we gotta keep going. We gotta keep going. During Black History Month, many students are being tasked with assignments about our culture. That's right, and there's one school that's having an art contest for Black History Month, and there's some pretty great work to choose from. Take a look. These are the finalists of the Black History Month Art Contest through the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Milwaukee and U.S. Cellular. It's our seventh annual Black History Month Art Contest. It always brings the excitement around this time. From Ruby Bridges, a six-year-old who defied a mob to desegregate her school, to Mae Jemison, the astronaut who defied gravity, becoming the first black woman to travel into space. Robert Smith with U.S. Cellular says the competition brought a range of ideas. There was a focus on the STEM field. 
And it's just important to give back, right? We know how important it is for our youth to learn about STEM figures, whether the past, present, influential leaders, and just how much African-Americans have actually contributed to society from that aspect. This Black History Month project doesn't just require a lot of creativity. Students have to do their research too. They end up learning their heritage. They learn about the men and women who blaze a trail for them today. I think it's really giving the young people a moment to just pause and understand their greatness, right? Like, and that they come historically from greatness. Oftentimes it's hard um, to be able to see that when you're in a neighborhood where it's filled with violence, filled with crime. Voting is open to the public for the top spot. Deontay Lewis with the Boys and Girls Club says kids are honored to be recognized. I think it's opportunity for everyone to be educated about it. Definitely appreciate appreciate that young brother. Yeah, that was great. It was a great story. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, coming up, a Detroit denial uh, of the former mayor of the city is asking a judge for a break. Yeah, we'll tell you exactly what the request was and more when we return. You are watching Fox Soul's Black Report. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Soulmates. Thank you so much for allowing us to help you move through your Monday afternoon or evening. Let's tap back to uh, today's top stories, just in case you're joining us. So let's go to Missouri, where a community and family is making any last attempts possible to save the life of a man who is scheduled to be executed tomorrow. Leonard Raheem Taylor was convicted of four counts of first degree murder over the 20. 04 killing of his girlfriend and her three young children. Now, witnesses say Taylor was 2,000 miles away from the scene of the crime at the time of the murders. Attorneys from the Innocent Project say Taylor's lawyers effectively abandoned him, providing an incompetent defense at his trial. They're asking for the governor to delay the execution until a thorough investigation can be completed. And a week after delivering a powerful eulogy for Tyree Nichols, Reverend L. Sharpton makes a historic trip to the United Kingdom to champion voting rights and police brutality accountability. Uh, the civil rights leader will make a two-day visit to the UK, addressing the shared challenges around voting rights and police accountability for black Americans and black Britons. Sharpton will address Nichols' death and the parallels of police brutality in the UK, where the number of stop and searches for black people increased since the COVID-19 pandemic. And back here stateside, the Republican-controlled House Oversight and Accountability Committee has disbanded the subcommittee on civil rights and civil liberties. The former committee, which focused on issues like voting rights, freedom of assembly and criminal justice reform measures, uh, was first started back in 2019. Now, the Republican representatives claim the move is to make the House Oversight and Accountability Committee more efficient. There's been no reason given why the subcommittee was removed or if at any point it will be reinstated. And lastly, to Minnesota, where the legislature has advanced a bill to the governor's desk that now restores the voting rights for people with felony records. Current law prohibits voting until a person's sentence is complete, including probation and parole. Now, under this new bill, a person with a felony conviction will be able to cast a ballot upon release from incarceration. There are 21 states that already allow felons to either regain their voting rights immediately after leaving prison. The court back to you. Thank you, Courtney. And uh, 
Now off to news where a federal judge has denied former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick's request to end his supervised release. The judge also reprimanded him for what she said are his unreformed ways. The Detroit Free Press reports that the U.S. District Judge Nancy Edmonds recently denied his request for several reasons, including his allegedly lavish lifestyle while ignoring debts, refusal to take responsibility for his crimes, and showing no change in his behavior. Kilpatrick requested an end to supervision so that he could travel freely as a pastor, assuring the court that he has learned from his mistakes. Kilpatrick, 52, was convicted in 2013 of a slew of federal corruption charges. He served seven years of his 28-year sentence before former President Donald Trump commuted his sentence. You know, as a native Detroiter, I think there are some Detroiters where he will always be a favorite. I think there are some Detroiters where he will always be a favorite despite his transgressions. And I do believe that there are a group of Detroiters where, you know, there's no return uh, to what, uh, you know, he blatantly, uh, obviously, um, you know, did as his years uh, as mayor. Um, you know, he seems to be reformed, now a pastor, uh, a man of the cloth. He's remarried. Uh, a, a new a new baby um, I don't know I think it's just a matter of do you believe or don't you and you know do you trust that this second chance uh, is is something that will you know keep him on the straight and narrow or do you just take a look at the past and say there's too much damage and you need to continue with with what we uh, you know sentenced you to to to, to do and to have to do and be responsible for. You know, I mean, I certainly believe in, in redemption. I think mm -hmm. a lot of our soulmates believe in redemption. He served uh, seven years of his 28-year sentence, and so it's not like he got off with just a slap on the wrist. It's mm -hmm. a pretty significant uh, time served. Uh, and I wonder, you know, how much of this reprimand by the judge is, you know, in part because his sentence was commuted. Uh, and, you know, by of all people, former President Donald Trump. You know, I wonder if that is a factor because when I read the story, you could you could feel the intensity mm. of the rebuke. You could read the intensity of the rebuke from uh, the federal judge. And so I wonder if that may have anything to do with it. You know, I feel like the sentence was a bit harsh when you look at the landscape of, of, of folks in his position who have done what he's done. Uh, of, of, the, of a different persuasion. I thought it was very, very uh, harsh. But I think a lot of this is coming from the fact that when you look back at the story, when you look back at his actions, it, it was the arrogance and, and the ego. And I think he just has not been able to, you know, outlive or outstretch that just yet. And that's just where people are. Some people are, maybe this judge, according to, to, to what was being said, uh, that's just where, where they stand. And uh, he's just gonna have to keep it, keep it moving, keep going and keep proving himself. It's Right. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump is making black history as the College uh, of Law at St. Thomas University. That's in Miami will become the Benjamin L. Crump College of Law. It's amazing. Now, this will be the first law school in the country named after a practicing black attorney. The only other law school in the country named for a black person is named after attorney Crump's personal hero, by the way, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. The college was ranked number one greatest resources for minority students in the 2022-23 Princeton Review best law schools rankings and pre-law magazine rated it among the top 10 best schools for racial justice in 2022 right here in the United States.
congratulations to Thank Benjamin you. Crump. That's, that's black history happening now. Mm -hmm. um, and in more black history first, Rodney Boyd has become the highest ranking black officer of color in the Illinois National Guard. Governor J.B. Pritzker recently announced that the Brigadier General Boyd, the assistant uh, uh, General for the Army of the Illinois National Guard and the commander of the Illinois Army National Guard has been promoted to Major General. This makes him the highest ranking black uh, and officer of color uh, in the nearly 300 year history of the Illinois National Guard. General Boyd, who grew up on Chicago's South Side, stated, quotes, <laughs> I stand on the shoulders of giants to achieve this second star. All right, so let's keep this winning conversation going. Congratulations in order uh, for Tennessee State University's Aristocrat of Bands. The marching band can now add Grammy Award winners to its long list of accomplishments after the band took home wins during last night's show uh, in two categories, including Best Roots Gospel Album. Uh, the band is now the first HBCU marching band in the nation to win the music uh, industry's highest honor. The list could get even longer once the uh, band learns the outcome of the NAACP Image Awards set for a little later this month. Congrats, y'all. All right, to all of our soulmates back home in the San Francisco Bay Area, turn up your volume. Rapper E-40 has donated 100 grand to Grambling State University's music department. While announcing the surprise, the former GSU student and hit maker was joined by his wife, Grambling State's president, Rick Gallett, and Dr. Nicole Roebuck who serve as the school's music department chair and director of bands. The university named their music studio Earl E-40 Stephen Sound Recording <laughs> Studio in his honor as a token of appreciation. I love it. E-40 is going to keep it real, and he puts his money where his mouth is. I love some E-40. Congratulations, That's right. That's right. man. I love it, too. I yeah. love it, too. All right, let's take a, a look at some history on this day. Uh, in the year of 1820, the first organized immigration back to Africa began when 86 free African-Americans left the New York Harbor aboard the Mayflower of Liberia. They were bound for the British colony of Sierra Leone, which welcomed free African-Americans as well as fugitive slaves. And throughout our years, we've often heard about this story, about these uh, free uh, slaves who went back to Africa and, and made a life for their own. And, and really, that's what uh, Sierra Leone is known for. Mm-hmm, yep. Oh, wow, okay. Well, I think uh, that's quite a story there. Indeed. Yep. Up next, unbelievable moments for black artists at this year's Grammy Awards. That's right. We have the best moments from last night and a few headlines about what happened behind the scenes. We'll be right back. You're watching Fox O's Black Report. So much happening mm -hmm. behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. All right, soulmates, you saw it last night, so did we. Beyonce became the most awarded artist in Grammy history with 32 wins, including Best Dance and Electronic Album for Renaissance. Yeah, that win kind of surprised me, though. Uh, show host Trevor Noah, who did, I think did an excellent job, declared Beyonce the GOAT, settling the ongoing debate with the statement, 
it's Beyonce. The audience was just as happy and celebrated with Beyonce as she thanked her family and the LGBTQ community. Beyonce won Best Traditional R&B Performance and Best Electric Dance Recording that we just mentioned, but missed out on Album, Song, and Record of the Year. The Grammy nominee and music legend Nile Rodgers, along with uh, Beyonce's producer The Dream, accepted her first win of the night as Beyonce was stuck in traffic. She continues to reign Supreme with, check this, 88 Grammy nominations, and this girl has 29 Grammys. Amazing. Congratulations to Beyonce and the Beehive. Uh, but there's more congratulations in order because actor Viola Davis adds a Grammy to her EGOT collection, winning the award for Best Audiobook Narration and Storytelling for her memoir, Finding Me. Davis is only the third black woman and 18th person overall to attain EGOT status, having previously won an Emmy, Oscar, and Tony. She beat fellow nominees Mel Brooks, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Questlove, and Jamie Foxx. In her acceptance speech, Davis paid homage to her childhood self, saying, quotes, I wrote this book to honor the six-year-old Viola, and it has been such a journey. I just EGOT. Yes, she did. And she joins uh, Jennifer Hudson and Whoopi Goldberg. And that can only three black women to do it thus far. Yeah. Uh, who is Samara Joy? The 23 year old jazz singer from the Bronx just made history last night as the latest recipient of the Grammy Award for Best New Artist. It was an amazing moment. She also won a Grammy for Jazz Vocal Album for Linger A While, her debut LP, which is so smooth and buttery and delicious. She was uh, up against notable acts like uh, Lotto, uh, Money Long, uh, Anita, a Wet Leg, and Main Skin. Joy is the granddaughter of gospel performance, uh, Elder Goldwire and Ruth McClendon, and won the prestigious Saravon International Jazz Vocal Competition back in 2019. She is set to perform uh, this coming weekend at the Soraya Performing Arts Center that's located at Cal State North Ridge. And I, I, I became hip to her uh, some time ago, maybe back with about 2019, uh, was right before um, the pandemic really kicked off because I noticed she had won the Saravana. When I heard one of her songs online, I felt that she sounded a lot, you know, like uh, Saravana and that throwback to that early days of jazz. When I found out that she was just at that time just a teenager, I was absolutely floored. Just very sweet, very down to earth, and. Maybe this will be the moment where it, it hits her that she has arrived, because if you follow her on social media like I do, it's, it's like she doesn't quite know how great she is or just hasn't really realized fully how great and amazing she is. So hopefully last night was a great, great moment for her. She comes from a musical family. Dad used to play bass for like the Clark sisters and Andre Crouch, so she is steeped in music. That's incredible, that's incredible. And, and I was really delighted to learn about her really through the Grammys. Mm -hmm. uh, after she won, you know, I sort of, you know, took to uh, uh, Apple uh, and listened to some of her music. And you're right, she does sound a lot like Sarah Vaughn. Mm -hmm. She sounds a lot like Billie Holiday. You know, like I haven't heard a Cold voice Green. like that in a very, very, very long time. And also with Viola Davis's acceptance speech, I really appreciated her nod to her husband, Julius, mm -hmm. right? Who she referred to as the love of her life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes we don't always see, uh, you know, the hubbies. Uh, and the brothers being acknowledged in that way. And so that was delightful to see. And then, you know, with Beyonce's acceptance speech, acknowledging uh, her uncle Johnny, who died of HIV AIDS, um, as an inspiration for the Renaissance album. What a moving tribute to her, her dead uncle. 
having her, you know, uh, make history at the Grammys yesterday, now becoming the most decorated Grammy Award winning artist in history. I'm just saying, it's pretty cool stuff. Uh, now, uh, you know what else is, is not so cool? It's not so cool. We just talked about cool stuff, but the not so cool stuff is that rap pioneer Gangsta Boo was left out of the 65th Grammy Awards memorial segment, causing outrage among fans on social media. One fan called the omission unacceptable and disrespectful. Another offered possible, possible justification, theorizing that Gangsta Boo might be honored at the next Grammy since she passed away in 2023. Now, Gangsta Boo passed away on New Year's Day at the age of 43, and her cause of death was, uh, has not yet been revealed. However, according to TMZ, an overdose is suspected, and a fentanyl-laced substance was found by authorities. Now, the family of the late rapper uh, has asked for privacy as they process their loss. Staying on the topic of the Grammys, the event was filled with memorable performances, including a tribute to hip hop's 50th anniversary curated by none other than Quest Love and The Roots. Let's take a look. Man, I was about to jump out my top floor window looking at this <laughs> tribute. It brought together pioneers like you saw it, Grandmaster Flash, Too Short, uh, with newer artists like Lil Baby and Lil Uzi Vert. Questlove spoke about his excitement and hard work behind the tribute, which uh, I heard about this too. It was condensed from 21 minutes to 14 minutes. Why? That's why everybody's performance was so short. As soon as you, it was done. As soon as they walked on stage. Now the Grammys also featured numerous nominations for hip hop heavyweights, including Khaled, a uh, future Kendrick Lamar, your favorite, uh, who won Best Rap Performance for his song "The Heart," uh, Part Five. Lotto earned a nomination for Best New Artist, and Doja Cat was up for Record of the Year. I just thought the performance was great, but it was a little rushed. Um, you know, it is Black History Month, and I, I now know who is it, Baby, Baby, Baby something, the, the Hispanic uh, artist, Baby something. I now know who he is, but I thought that maybe, Oh, Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. I, I, I feel like it's Black History Month. You know, hip hop's 50th anniversary. This was a big to do. A lot of folks were looking forward. I think they should have switched up the performances. Bad, what's his name? Bad Bunny. Him too. Should have probably been later in the show. And I just feel so that performance, the hip hop um, celebration could breathe a little bit more. I just feel it should have been in the beginning of the show. It should have been a show opener. It was just as uh, um, um, uh, high energy and, and, and impactful as the, as the Bad Bunny. 
that's just me. But I loved how some of the older performers, the folks my age, <laughs> look just as good as some of the new generation, how they brought that together. I just don't think there was enough breathing room for it to really just be, for, for us to really bask in it like we should have been able to. Yeah. It's Black History Month. Well, I think, Put that performance up front. I think, think LL, Cool J, LL Cool J mentioned at the top of the performance that this was just the beginning. So I think it's going to mm -hmm. be a series of celebrations mm -hmm. uh, of the 50th anniversary of hip hop that will happen throughout the year, mm -hmm. uh, you know, through the Recording Academy and other folks and so that's exciting to learn uh, but uh, it was a high energy performance mm -hmm. it was incredible uh, a lot of the artists looking better than they've looked in mm -hmm. a very long time mm -hmm. um, I felt like I was listening to the soundtrack of, of my my growing up years mm -hmm. while while I'm a millennial my most of my brothers are are Xers and so I remember you know yes, listening to sir. a lot of the music in our house <laughs> and so uh, I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did yeah. it was really a great Grammy Award it was well produced well put together big up to Dr. Dre and that inaugural reward, award that yeah. people will continue to get, you know, at the Grammys. Um, I just think that the performances should have been switched out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And congratulations to Collins Entertainment for producing a, a great Grammy Award. You would know that. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> real news and uh, comedy collide once again at this year's White House Correspondents Association dinner as Roy Wood Jr. takes the stage. Known for his role as a reporter on The Daily Show, Woods Jr. Uh, promises to bring a unique blend of humor and thought-provoking commentary to the event on April 29th. President of the Correspondent Association, Tamara Keith, says that Roy Wood Jr. brings a journalistic eye to his comedy. This year's dinner follows in the footsteps of last year's event, which saw former Daily Show host Trevor Noah take the stage and President Biden deliver humorous jabs at himself, former President Trump and the press. I think Roy would be a great, a great replacement for Troy, uh, Troy for Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah, I'm just saying. All right, Nola is heating up. Bounce artist Big Frida is bringing a new hotspot uh, to the city with Hotel Frida, a boutique nightclub and hotel set to break ground in the Farborough uh, Margany neighborhood this spring. Uh, with just five rooms, Hotel Frida will operate more as a nightclub, music venue, and pool party spot. According to Frida's manager, uh, it'll be a, quote, country club with a music venue featuring both local and national music. The hotel concept came to life during the pandemic when Frida occupied her time at home cooking and providing hospitality. Frida aims for a grand opening in time for Mardi Gras 2024. We love to hear that. You know what else we love to hear? Mm. Get ready, Rihanna Navy. Bad gal Riri is hitting the stage this month at the Super Bowl halftime show, and it's just the beginning of her comeback. Are we calling it a comeback? Well, maybe. According to sources closest to the artist, she's gearing up to announce a full North American tour later this year with European dates to follow in 2024. The pop star is also rumored to be releasing new music and performing many residencies in major cities while the 34-year-old hasn't toured since 2016. Recent photos show her hard at work in the studio. Fans are eager to see what the singer and entrepreneur has in store as she balances music and her beauty and lingerie brands, Fenty Beauty, and my favorite, Savage by All Fenty. All right, the countdown begins to the big game. That's right, coming up, black excellence in our children. You know, Whitney says, teach them well and let them lead the way. And we'll tell you just how old one young man is who just graduated from high school. It's all straight ahead on Fox Soul's Black Report.
All right, Soulmates, we want to introduce you to nine-year-old David Balagun, who just received his high school diploma <laughs> from Reach Cyber Charter School in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You said it, high school diploma. David said he loves science and computer programming and credits a number of his teachers for his success. David's parents uh, have advanced degrees themselves, but say raising a son with extraordinary intellectual gifts to understand and comprehend a lot of concepts behind his years and even their understanding is a bit challenging. I can only imagine <laughs> David has ambitious goals for the future and wants to be an astrophysicist to study black holes and supernovas. I just love I this know. story so much. And I'm sure he will do exactly just that. Oh my goodness. Thanks I, for joining us today. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm Nicordelai Corte. Until next time, soulmates, stay, stay lifted. lifted.